This has already been a great service this morning, and now we get to really come to the highlight of any service, the time when we open the Word of God together. The Word of God is the pinnacle of why we gather. It's how we know everything we know about God, how we know about salvation itself, how we know about Christ. Whenever we open the Word of God, we are coming to the center point of, of our gathering. This morning, we're going to continue our series through the, the third book of the Psalms. In a sense, the, the Psalms that we've looked at so far in this section of the Psalter have been somewhat redundant. If you think about it, they, they've repeated the same theme over and over. Each Psalm that we have looked at so far in this section has dealt with the desire to have God judge the wicked. They've had a yearning for God's people to, to find vindication as they struggle to live out their lives in this sin-filled world. The, the hostility of this world is, has brought forth emotional agony and, and angst created by the oppression of those who hate Christ. The, these psalms have reminded us that, that we live in this hostile world, that, that we're using the terms Peter uses in his first letter, we're pilgrims, we're strangers traveling through. This is not where we belong. We're, we're hated because we seek righteousness in an unrighteous world. The psalms have been repetitive, and, and yet, if we look carefully at, at the psalms that we've gone through so far, we can observe there, there's a progression of ideas in, in which they've been arranged. The, the psalms, each psalm is a poem that, that stands independently. It's a song that can be sung by itself by the people of Israel. Each, each psalm has a complete idea. And yet, as the Jewish nation assembled these psalms over centuries, putting them together, they there was a lot of thought put into the final arrangement that we've received here in the Psalter. Psalm 73, that, that began the, the third book of the psalm, it dealt with a world filled with injustice. Psalm 74 then cried out for God to arise and judge all the, the unrighteous oppressors of the nation of Israel. Psalm 75 looked forward to a day when God's judgment would come. It gave the assurance that God had this plan that's unfolding and, and it is coming according to his promises and we can wait with confidence for that day to come when he finally judges. Well, this morning, as you can see, we're looking at Psalm 76. The, the theme of judgment continues to, to run through this psalm. But, but this time we're going to find that our psalmist rejoices because judgment has come. It's arrived. There's a great lesson for us to learn this morning. But my plan is to walk through the psalm first. And then we'll step back and, and we'll consider what that lesson is for us. There's four stanzas in this psalm, four stanzas in this poem, if you will, the, the psalm. But as we look at them, we're going to look at them under three points. The, the first point that we find in the first stanza is that Israel has a majestic God. Remember, this is Israel's songbook, so we shouldn't be surprised that Israel sings about Israel. You know, we sometimes sing about America because America's our country. Israel sings about Israel, and Israel has a majestic God. Follow along as I read the, at verse 1. God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. His tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. There he broke the flaming arrows, the shield, and the sword, and the weapons of war. Our psalmist is celebrating that Israel's God is a great God. 
a majestic God, a God who he's revealed himself, a God who's made himself known to his people, uh, people that he has chosen to be his chosen nation. His name is famous throughout that nation. He's known in Judah and in Israel. Seems to suggest that maybe the psalmist is writing at time after the, the nation was split into two kingdoms, the northern and southern. Not only though is God known, but God is also graciously chosen to dwell among his people. He's chosen to specifically dwell in Jerusalem. When we see Jerusalem and we read the word tabernacle, we we probably think of the glorious temple that was in Jerusalem. We know that's the place when Solomon built that temple that God shows to dwell in the Holy of Holies, manifest his his presence in a special way, his glory filled the, the temple. Yet it, that does not seem to be the picture here that the psalmist is creating. The word that is translated tabernacle in the New American Standard, or as well if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, is translated as tabernacle. That's not the normal word for tra- tabernacle. The, the Hebrew word that's used there is a, a word that actually originally meant an, a natural thicket a place where animals would live. You know, they would dwell in their thicket, their place of safety and refuge. Sometimes that word was used for a hut, where a place where people lived in a hut. It doesn't depict a luxurious building. That's not the meaning of the term. It seems like the psalmist is creating this idea in our mind, compared to God's natural glory of heaven, any place he dwells on earth is a hut by comparison. Yet, there he is, dwelling among his people, the majestic God, right in the middle of his people. By by dwelling in their midst, God has brought peace to them. That's the point of verse 3. God has brought peace for Jerusalem and the the people of Israel. This verse stanza really is not intended to teach us truth. If you think about what propositional truth is, is given here, there isn't much God dwells in Israel. Israel. God is Israel's God. It's not designed to teach us truth. It's intended to evoke emotion. These lines are designed to give us awe and adoration for God. As we think about the fact that God, the glorious God, is dwelling in the middle of his people, our minds should be filled with awe and wonder. The simple reality of God ensuring the peace of his people should provoke emotion. That's the goal of the first stanza. Israel has a majestic God. The next two stanzas both make the same point. The second point is that God saves his people. God saves his people. That's a wonderful point. A point that highlights God's majesty in a very personal fashion. Both the second and third stanzas make this point which is why we're looking at these two stanzas under, under a single point. In the second stanza, the specific point is made that God saves his people historically. God can use past tense, saved his people historically. Reading at verse 4. You are resplendent, more majestic than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered, they sank into sleep, and none of the warriors could use his hands. 
At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse were cast into a deep sleep. This stanza starts out here with you. You can go ahead and click to the next slide too. That might help people. There you go. You, you, it's emphatic in verse 4. God is resplendent. He's majestic. You are the God who has done this. And then the psalmist remembers a time when God showed his majestic splendor by saving his people. There was an overwhelming military force, according to the poetic imagery that we have here, that's all aligned against Israel. Now, there's not enough information in the psalm to tie to any specific event, but many commentators observe that the elimination of Shennacherib's army in Second Kings 19 or Isaiah 37, it's one of the victories that Israel had, that God gave Israel, that God himself personally gave Israel, is recorded in two places. Shennacherib, he was the, the king of Assyria. His army was surrounding Jerusalem. He had conquered all the other areas around, and Jerusalem was certain to fall to the mighty army. In fact, the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament Bible, the, if, you, if you want to know what Jesus read, he primarily seemed to use the Septuagint, or at least the apostles did if they went out into Greek lands. It's this, that translation has a heading over this psalm that, that says, concerning the Syrian. So they too saw that would be a good example that, of what this psalmist has in mind here. Because if you remember that specific event, if this mighty Assyrian army was surrounding Jerusalem and there was no human hope whatsoever, humanly speaking, Jerusalem had no chance. No chance but God. God fought for Israel. God went out on a single night and God slew 185,000 warriors of the enemy. The Assyrian camp was decimated. When morning came, Israel found a camp that was emptied. Those who survived fled and went back to Assyria. And the only thing left in the camp was two things, bodies and plunder. The story of that defeat certainly fits the, the image of these verses that, that the warriors could not use their hands and the stout-hearted were plundered. They sank into sleep. Of course, there's also several other, other times where God gave Israel great victories over far superior armies than, than their own. So we don't know for sure, but these verses do create a contrasting picture in our mind. The contrast between um, the mighty power of God and the imaginary power of nations. To, to me, it's always a bit like the surprise I get if I ever watch a behind-the-scenes clip of how movies are made. Have any of you ever watched those behind-the-scenes clips? You watch the movie, and it seems like the actors were in this great action out and live place, and then you see this behind-the-scenes the clip, and instead of being on a real-life street, they're, they're in some sort of a warehouse, studio warehouse where they're being filmed. And, and you thought there were all these big buildings, storefronts along the, 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 the street where the action's taking place. And you see, at best, it's maybe a wood frame with cardboard over, and most likely now it's not even that. It's just a green wall that computers later project the street scene against. You, you think the actors have gone flying through the air during a great explosion, then you see, no, they're... You, hooked to cables, and the cables yank them. And they're in these harnesses. Nothing's real. It's all imaginary. 
In fact, instead of being all alone, being the lone hero fighting out by himself, they're surrounded by camera people and microphone holders and assistants and you name it. They're far from alone. Everything that looked real was fake. Well, the power of nations may look real, but it's all imaginary. God alone is real. His power alone is real. All God needs to do is speak, or as it says here in verse 6, rebuke the nations. All he has to do is speak words, rebuke them, and they're felled. He can put to death and destroy with nothing more than a mighty word. God saved his people historically. That's the point of the second stanza. That idea is really expanded in the third stanza with the future look. God will save his people permanently. God saves his people. He saved them historically. He will save them permanently. Just like verse 4, verse 7 begins with an emphatic you addressing God. You, God. Verse 7, you, even you are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? You caused judgment to be heard from, the, from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth. As I mentioned at the outset, the, the recent psalms in this section of the Psalter, they've been calling for judgment to come on, on the enemies of God. Well, our psalmist in this stanza really echoes that desire, but he recognizes that there are really two perceptions of what will happen when God does that. When God comes and judges his enemies, there's two different ways of looking at it, two angles. For the enemies of God, when God comes, his judgment is wrath. When God's action at the moment is judgment. Yet for God's people... When God does that, it's salvation. When God finally moves in wrath, no one will be able to stand before him. Just as God could slay 185,000 warriors of Assyria, God can destroy any who attempt to oppose him. He is to be feared. As the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 8, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. The, the picture that the psalmist gives us here is that when God announces his judgment on the earth, the entire earth freezes in fear. Verse 8, the earth feared and was still. I apologize that this time of year I keep coming up with hunting illustrations, but to me this reminds me of when I'm out hunting again. And I see a deer starting to approach. If I move too quickly or if I make a smaller noise, that deer's head freezes, points, ears point right in my direction, and that deer doesn't twitch a muscle trying to determine is there danger nearby or not. Of course, if the deer assumes there's danger, he bolts away. Well, when God moves, the whole earth freezes. Yet there will be no bolting from God. He will judge the enemies. At the same time, we're told, 
At the same time he's judging the enemies, he saves the humble of the earth. He saves the humble. That shows when he says all the humble of the earth there in verse 9, that shows that our psalmist is looking forward. He's looking to the time of final judgment when all of God's people will finally be permanently saved. The psalmist has historical events he can point to. When God arose, there's times where God arose, but he can take those historical events, he can generalize from that, and he can point to the future and says, God will do it again and it will be one final time and all the humble will be saved. Let me pause now for a moment and ask you to picture in your minds God shifting on his heavenly throne. He's moving. You can tell he's about to rise. Are you still before the coming judgment of God? This morning, we've been reminded of a great historical event through the baptisms we witness. God, the, the holy God, the, the creator God, he sent his son to give his life for sins of people who had rebelled against him. We saw two of those people come to the point where they understood that, recognized and told us here how they came to realize and, and asked Jesus to forgive them for their sins. Because the Bible says that all of us were like those two. All of us had rebelled against God, and it says for the wages of sin, or for all have sinned and, and fall short of glory of God, followed with the just penalty, the wages is death. In other words, the right judgment for our sins should fall on all of us, and it should be this rebuke of God that sends us to death. God shifts on his throne. And when he does so, all humanity freezes knowing that death is coming to his enemies. And the Bible tells us that death is the eternal lake of fire. That's what's coming. Yet the historical event that we celebrated this morning, that we witnessed in the two lives, is that death does not have to be the future because Christ died in our place. He died in the place of sinners. And yet, for his death to have any value for any of us, we have to personally admit that we deserve death and ask God to take the death of his own son in our place. So picture a moment. God's now finished shifting on his throne and he's arising. He's coming to judge. He's coming to bring death. Is that death your death? If so, fear is the only possible response you can have. There is no bolting away. There's no escaping. Yet the Hebrew word fear can mean terror or reverent awe. It can have either meaning depending on the context. So if he's coming to bring death to you, fear, terror is the only response that you can have. But if you trust in Jesus for your salvation. If you ask God to take his death in your place, then your fear can become the awe kind. The awe that 
he is not coming to judge you. He's coming to save. But he is only to save all the humble of the earth. To be part of the humble of the earth, you have to humble yourself enough to admit that you need salvation in Christ. And I say humble because our sin-filled, pride-filled nature does not want to ask for help. I bet if I asked for a show of hands, how many of you hate asking for help? All of us would raise our hands, right? We don't like to ask for help. We certainly do not want to admit that we deserve death and ask someone to take our place in death. But it is all the humble of the earth who will be saved when Jesus comes. This morning, as I said, we celebrated two that have joined the the ranks of the humble. They're waiting for God to rise from his throne, bring judgment on the rebels, and to save the humble. Those two, along with many of us, are waiting with awe for that moment. My question to all of you is, can you join those of us waiting with awe? Are you ones that should be waiting with fear and terror? If you're in the latter category, you're waiting with fear and terror, talk to me after the service. Let me introduce you more fully to Jesus. Let me share with you more fully who he is and what he has done. You can send me an email. My email address is on the screen. Let's talk. You do not have to fear this day. You can join the humble who are waiting for salvation to come. God will Save his people permanently. The, the second and third stanza together make the same point. God will save his people. He, he has saved them historically and he will save them permanently. In the final stanza, we have one additional point. All people, all people will praise God's majesty. All people will praise God's majesty. Look at the last three verses, verse 10. For the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remnant of wrath, you will gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. He will cut off the spirit of princes. He is feared by the kings of the earth. Verse 10 is a difficult verse. It's a verse that's difficult to translate from the original Hebrew. The Hebrew is very Dense is very condensed, and it's hard to bring out in English what it might mean. Plus, the idea is is most unexpected. The overall meaning that is easy to understand is that there's people who will rage against God. Despite our most urgent pleas to people to turn from their rebellion, there will be people who continue to hate God to the very end. Revelation talks about people who are hiding from God, wanting the mountains to fall upon them, but still rebelling against him as they fear in terror. Yet even their hatred, this verse is telling us, will serve ultimately to praise God. As God puts down his enemies, his majesty will be displayed. His sovereignty and his power will shine forth. Even their rebellion as is put down, will serve to show glory to God. Now, this may seem a little hard for us to understand at first, but let's think about it this way. I, I think we'll begin to grasp it better. We, collectively, have recently begun to experience this very strange thing in this city. 
we've begun to celebrate a winning football team. People are actually anticipating the Lions games and, and anticipating victory, praising the Lions team. Of course, probably with a little hesitancy because of history, but we, we have that new experience. Yet all of the excitement that we have as we celebrate their victories, all of that praise depends on the defeat of various opponents. The Lions cannot win unless someone else loses. Historically, the Lions' role in the NFL has been to heap glory on other teams. Now other teams are heaping glory on the Lions by losing to the Lions. Verse 11 here pictures two different groups of, who will praise God. But verse 10, 10, before we get to that, shows us that all people will praise God because those who hate God, not just those who bow before him, all will praise him because even those who hate God will be defeated by him. It, It will be as if he wraps himself in their wrath as he puts them down to eternal punishment. His victory over his fierce enemies, his fierce opponents, that will bring glory to him and it will be added to by all of those in verse 11 who bring their homage to him. Two different groups will will praise that victory. In in the first line of the verse, we have God's covenant people praising him. The leaders of God's covenant people will will make vows and, and fulfill their vows, showing their allegiance to him because he's the victorious God. They'll show that God is their God by praising him as such. The second group in the second line there are all the nations that surround Israel. Since God's capital will be Jerusalem, all the nations that surround, they will join in praise to him. They'll bring gifts and offer homage to to God. They'll acknowledge that he is the one to be feared. Since they're aligned with him, their fear is that reverential awe kind of fear. They will note that that God has rescued his people, that he's judged his enemies, and and they'll offer this awe-filled praise along with gifts to to show their their love and adoration. Folks, this is the day, this stanza here is pointing to the day that all the Bible anticipates, that the long-anticipated day, that the point when all of human history meets its, its culmination when Christ returns. Ever since sin entered the Garden of Eden, everything's been marching towards that day. Even the unrest we see when we turn on our news is taking us to the day that this stanza is pointing to. The day when all of earth praises God. When he has shown himself to be the Lord Almighty and everyone acknowledges the un disputed greatness of Israel's God. Sadly, some of those will acknowledge this undisputed greatness from the lake of fire, acknowledging that God was right to consign them for all eternity because of their rebellion to its fires. But others will acknowledge it while praising him for the love and the mercy that they received at the cross of Christ, the one who died for them. Again, the question for all of us this morning is, which form of acknowledgement will our lives take? Will we give a willing, joy-filled praise or a much-too-late contrast-through-defeat 
filled praise. All people will praise God's majesty. That's the third point our psalm makes. So let's review there on the screen. Israel has a majestic God. God will save his people. All people will praise God's majesty. As we put these points together and as we step back and we, we think about how this all applies to us, we do find there is a great lesson. That lesson is that God's great victories generate praise of his majesty. God shows off his glory, shows off his sovereignty, shows off his power through great victories. And those great victories generate praise of his majesty. God is a victorious God. History is filled with records of his victory, displays of his faithfulness to his, his, his people, his power, his sovereign control. Surely the people who lived through each individual victory offered praise to God. Still, as part of future generations, as we look back and we look through the the, the lens of history, and we see God working time and time again, we should join in praising God for his majesty on display. At the same time, our, our psalm has taught us that these historical victories, they should direct our gaze forward. They should direct our gaze to, to the future, the final victory that, that we know is coming. We should praise God for that victory. We've seen one way that we praise God for that final victory in our service today when we give God praise that his final victory allows us to humbly accept Jesus in faith. Praising God for the salvation that we know is coming because of Christ. Lastly, we, we should praise God by sharing what Christ has done. We should share what Christ has done with others throughout the week magnify the glory of God, his victory, because the ultimate victory is when he brought Christ out of the tomb. We should proclaim God's fame as he displays it in Christ. We should warn people that if they continue to rage against God, rejecting the, the gift of salvation that's offered in Christ, they will give God praise, but it will be from the lake of fire. They will serve to praise God through eternal defeat. We should boldly share that the joy that we have in God's judgment, the confidence we have regardless of what we see going on in the world comes because we know that God will save us because we're among the humble that he is coming to save. After all, Christ has already overcome. Everything else is minor by comparison. And we should invite others to join us, to join us in praising God for salvation in Christ. God's great victories generate praise of his majesty. Father, we thank you for the day that you've given us to gather to worship you. We thank you for the events we've been able to celebrate, the great victory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we've sung about, that we've seen displayed in lives today through baptism. But oh, more than anything else that we've seen in the pages of your revelation, the great victories that we know point to your ultimate victory 
that cause us to praise you. So, Father, I pray that you would work in each of our lives, that you would swell our hearts, that our awe of you would increase, that we would stand in awe of our God, offering the praise that he so rightly deserves because of what we've received in Christ. If there is anyone here today that needs to know the salvation that Christ alone offers, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would seek out someone who can share with them more fully who Christ is and what he has done so that they can join us among those who are humble because we've asked you to accept another in our stead, paying the penalty that we rightly deserved. Father, it's in his glorious name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.